ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Barnflies, a podcast about our podcast. Since we realized last week that we are now at almost the exact halfway point of Shakespeare's plays, we wanted to take a little time to reflect on our year with Willie Shakes. Today, favorite moments, ranking mistakes, and some thoughts on the development of Shakespeare as an artist. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is Minisode number five, Halfway. So, Will, I, I don't think we need to be particularly dogmatic or formal on this. You know, this is a halfway point. It's not like the formal august occasion. It's like a half formal occasion. So I, I think we can be a little loose and easy with it. I'm going to sort of guide us through what I kind of imagine we should talk about, but you should obviously feel free to bust out and have other ideas or humiliate me in front of our audience, you know, whatever you prefer, as, as you always do by being so much more intelligent than I am. All activities I enjoy. I would also say that uh, you deprecate the halfway point, but I'm dressed in a tuxedo right now in the home studio, so I'm showing you up in a sartorial fashion as well with my respect for Literally the, the first time you've ever shown me up in a sartorial fashion, Will. On uh, a routine basis in college. I believe I owned a tuxedo uh, well before you. Now, granted, that tuxedo this could have been lit on calumny. fire with an calumny. open flame. I, look, all, all I know is I had an $120 tuxedo. I still have it, actually, that I got our freshman year of college when we were... Uh, you know, attending said events that might require them. And I dare say I look a more dapper and worldly man than yourself. Sources say that this is an atrocious lie, but... Uh, I'm expecting a glove to be thrown down and pistols <laughs> at dawn after this, uh, after this episode. Uh, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm so flabbergasted. I don't, I don't know how to react right now. I'm flustered. I'm flustered. So you know. overall impressions, though, I... I think it's safe to say that neither of us had read a lot of Shakespeare since high school. Maybe the occasional play here and there. Certainly some films, seeing a couple things on stage. But nothing near as comprehensive as this project has been. Which has been a revelation for me in a lot of ways. And I would just say overall, the impression of Shakespeare as a genius stands for me and in some ways it's only deepened by reading some of his early missteps because you realize it's a process and he persevered and at a certain point in life you got to admire a man who is cranking out plays year after year some of which are stone cold classics and some of which are duds but seem to be getting better and better if we were to plot this on a graph so that's my that's my overall impression thus far yeah i mean i have to say like i was looking at the list of plays right and we've i feel like we've read we've read a couple great ones of course romeo and juliet is like might be the most famous of all of them i think it's you know, to some degree, that's like such a crowd pleaser or such a populist play that I think it's just more accessible to a lot of mm-hmm. people. Henry the Fourth, one Richard the Third. You know, these are and much do much do about nothing. Like these are definitely classics and things that are known by a lot of people. But really, you know, will we haven't scratched the surface yet on the really great stuff. Mm. And that's interesting to me because I do I do agree with you. I, I mean, so my overall impression. 
I mean, I think I would have described myself as an ignorant Shakespeare fan. You know, I always enjoyed going to see the plays. I think maybe I enjoyed going to see the plays, you know, or watching the movies because I thought I should enjoy it. You know, Mm -hmm. somehow that was like a thing that intelligent people liked and therefore I should like it or something. And I, and I think we've, you you probably as well as, as I, have had the benefit of a couple really great films. And I think that seeing a great performance of Shakespeare goes a long way to ingraining an appreciation for the work mm-hmm. in your mind. And I think particularly, like, you know, these plays are meant to be heard, not to be seen. The thing in Shakespeare Day was, we'll hear a play. But when they're done really well as movies, I think they can really be effective. Mm-hmm. Overall impressions... I would say I agree. One of the, weirdly, one of the biggest impressions I've had as we've gone through this process is that I feel like Shakespeare has something to say about everything. Yes. I feel like for every situation you can find, there's a line in Shakespeare that talks about it. And I think it's inherent to the process probably by which he wrote these plays. Like there's a lot of stuff that like doesn't make sense or doesn't work. But the stuff that is on point and is great is truly great. Like when Shakespeare is good, he really is better than anyone else. So there's there's that. And I also will say, and I'm interested to see how this develops as we move forward. One thing I've noticed, particularly as we've done the early side of things, a lot of the time, I don't know that it's the plays as artistic holes that are working for me. But often there is something remarkable in the play, even mm-hmm. if the play as a whole doesn't work perfectly. Yeah, and I, I kind of wonder if that is going to be one of the things that changes as we enter into the back half of the canon and we hit the really big ones, the Macbeths, the Hamlets, the Lears, the Julius Caesars, as well as you know Tempest, Twelfth Night things along those lines. I wonder if that's going to be something that we see that represents sort of a change in that it's not just a single element where you can see genius at work, but it's the refinement and combination of factors. I mean, we just talked about Much Ado About Nothing in our previous full episode, and we talked about how that play brought together and remixed a bunch of elements that he had been experimenting with earlier and it did it better and i wonder if we're gonna see in some of the dramas and comedies to come a new level of sophistication as he's refining and bringing different elements that he had done well in a particular play but didn't fire on all cylinders and i'm kind of looking forward to seeing what that looks like because having read some of the ones way in the distant past of uh, the tragedies and comedies and histories to come. I'm really excited to see where he goes. I also would say further to that and and contributing to it, even when the plays don't work, they're almost always interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it's telling that we were able to have a 50-minute conversation about Richard II. You know, a, a play that dramatically does not work that well. But it's very interesting. You know, there's there's something, there's really interesting stuff within it. And I think that that goes to show that he's getting at stuff that is important and interesting and meaningful. Mm-hmm. You know, even if in the plays we've read up till now, maybe he isn't able to 
turn that yeah. into a like a perfectly constructed piece of drama. Yeah, well, I think it goes to show when you encounter some of the writing that he does. I mean, the joke that I often like to make about things that I read that I don't think are good, but I'm glad I read them is it's a bad book about a very important subject. But what I think is interesting is I don't actually feel like most of the plays that Shakespeare wrote, even the ones that I would say are dramatically inert or duds or don't really work. I don't even think that they're bad because there's something I'm learning from each of them. It's not to say that the ones that have not been so good, Two Gentlemen of Verona, Taming of the Shrew, some of the worst of the history plays that we've read, it's always interesting, you know, or it always makes you think a little bit uh, and it makes you dissect it. And it's not always about it being a product of William Shakespeare that makes you do that. It's because he's getting at interesting things, even if it's only in a couple lines of dialogue or a single soliloquy, or a plot choice that he makes. And, you know, maybe that would be a different impression for somebody who was consuming Elizabethan drama contemporaneously and could contextualize and sort of place what Shakespeare was doing compared to his competitors. But for me, I would say even the ones that I have not liked or do not think work, I never leave thinking that it was a total waste of time Mm -hmm. to read them. Let me throw maybe a little bit of a complication into this conversation, Will, and I I will ask you this, right? So I think we've established, for both of us, it seems like this has been a really enriching and interesting project. However, we live in a world where Shakespeare is universally acclaimed as the greatest author. I would say most people or many people would say not just the greatest author in the English language, but the perhaps the greatest author in the history of world literature, right? Like that's kind of the scale of conversation we're talking about. And I remember having a conversation, and this is actually back in college, with a friend of mine who said, um, you know, back when we were young and, and knew nothing, you know, who said that he, he thought that it was really only Shakespeare's reputation that made people talk, talk about him that way. And that really, there have been many authors who've been as good as Shakespeare. They're just, no one can be acknowledged to be as good as Shakespeare now. So what do you think about this kind of august reputation that Shakespeare has? Do you think it's deserved? Do you think it's true? Do you think that he is great but overrated? I mean, what do you, how do you react to that? I think he's great, but I don't think he's great in the sense that perhaps Harold Bloom presents him to be great. I mean, there's a sense in which obviously we're doing this project and there's some underlying belief, I think, that is endemic to it about Shakespeare's importance as a writer, as a thinker, as somebody who shaped the course of world literature and told really good stories. That does not necessarily have to mean, though, that everything he wrote has to be treated as if it was handed down on stone tablets from Mount Ararat or something. It's not all prophetic and amazing and good in equal measure. To me, and I alluded to this at the beginning, part of it is in the journey of watching him get better and better and continue to have to say profound things and to continue reworking 
the ideas that he's clearly grappling with over time and refining them into increasingly powerful pieces of work. And I'm not saying that the development is linear, but I do think that there is a clear trajectory that you can plot. It's not every play is literally better than the last play, but I do think that there's a pattern that we're watching unfold and that the quality is very high and continues to be very high in general at this stage that we've arrived at. So I guess that's my impression, is I think he deserves the reputation. I think that there can sometimes be, among people, and you know, and I say this as somebody who is sympathetic to the great book style curriculum and education, but I think there can be a tendency to worship at the feet of dead masters sometimes and mm-hmm. forget that they were living dynamic people and appreciate that their failures and growth actually makes them more compelling figures and greater artists and more interesting at the end of the day than um, they would have been otherwise. So in that sense, yeah, to use the Harold Bloom phrase, you know, Shakespeare, the invention of the human, I don't think it's necessarily a matter of Shakespeare per se inventing the human, but by coming to appreciate Shakespeare as a person through his work, I've developed a greater appreciation for the work And I've also just come to enjoy the work as it stands on its own without any reference of him coming to some of this stuff relatively cold. Anyway, that's a rather extreme digression, but all of which is to say he is great. He is a genius. He does stand athwart the shoulders of us all. And it's been a delight in that sense. What about you? What do you you think about the reputation? It's, It's something I grapple with, I think. I think first... One thing that has to be stated is that, you know, in the contemporary setting or in the contemporary world, even if you were a writer and you were stylistically and thematically and intellectually as good as Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't be as good as Shakespeare because you would still be drawing on Shakespeare, right? To be be as good as Shakespeare, you actually have to be better than Shakespeare. He is like the progenitor, right? Like it's derivative if you are able to just mimic the man's work. But, you know, at the end of the day, he invented a whole style of talking about these issues. Sorry to interrupt you there. No, no, no. I I mean, I, I agree. And I think, I mean, I think it just goes to the point that like, because art is evolution and everyone's drawing on what has come in the past, the thing that is in the past is almost necessarily more significant until the point that it is clearly surpassed, right? If someone wrote a novel today and and people were like, oh, this is as good as Hamlet, it probably wouldn't have the same impact as Hamlet in time, right? You have to really do something radical and incredible to kind of vault into that conversation. Yeah. So that's part one. Yeah. Part two is the... I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like we're, I think it's hard to answer the question and maybe I shouldn't have asked the question in the halfway point episode. I mean, I think it's hard to answer when we basically have all of what most people would say are the greatest plays yet to come. Mm -hmm. I will say, I think where I would agree with that lofty view of Shakespeare is in the amount of things about which Shakespeare has something to say and where he has not just something to say, but something relevant and human and true to say that is interesting and that makes you think, mm-hmm. that, I would say, surpasses most authors. And the degree to which he's able to put 
like where it truly feels like you're not hearing Shakespeare's words come from these characters, right? It's these characters speaking for themselves and representing a view of the world that is unique to them. Mm-hmm. And that is not just like Shakespeare's refracted view of that way of thinking about the world. That I think is maybe unique in all the authors that I've read. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to like overstate it. Maybe, you know, I- I'm obviously speaking off the cuff here and like haven't thought about this exhaustively. But I think that is like a truly remarkable thing. So I, maybe, you know, so maybe overall I would say like, is the reputation deserved? I mean, I think he definitely deserves the reputation insofar as he's considered great and that people think that he should be read. Is he the greatest author who's ever lived? I mean, I, I, I almost... It's I an insoluble, like it's question, impossible. Yeah, you know? it's an impossible question, right? So maybe even asking the question is, is false, and, and may, but maybe also I wanted to ask it because I feel like in the reading of the plays, one of the things that's come out is the, is how false that question is, you know, because you do kind of get to know Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with me? I would agree with you there. I think you get a glimpse of his personality and worldview. I mean, you can't attribute everything that's in the plays to his actual opinions on everything in the world, but there is a perspective and it is a perspective with some degree of unity and there's change and greater and greater detail and elaboration. But yeah, I mean, I I think that you know him. And I think that like in the process of getting to know him through the plays, one thing that comes out is that the idea that he's this like inhuman paragon of greatness Mm -hmm. is shed. Yes. You know, he is human and he is definitely important and a genius. And these things are all true. But I think, I don't know. I I guess I just want us to be cautious about these kind of sweeping statements that I think are really honestly easier when you've only read a couple of the plays and you know his reputation. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that, and this is sort of why I say it's it's not true in the sense of people who talk about Shakespeare as if everything is perfect and just a confirmation of genius, undiluted. But I actually think that perhaps the best thing that I can say is uh, quote the lines of Ben Jonson, a friend and contemporary of Shakespeare's, who eulogized him famously saying, my Shakespeare rise... I will not lodge thee by Chaucer or Spencer or bid Beaumont lie a little further to make thee a room. Thou art a monument without a tomb, and art alive still while thy book doth live, and we have wits to read and praise to give. And I think that actually sums up my view pretty well, which is that Shakespeare is meant to be read, the art is meant to be observed and consumed, and that we do the work a disservice by putting him in an elevated tomb in which you just understand him by two or three colossally famous works and the reputation of an icon. He deserves, I think, the iconography in every conceivable respect, but you shouldn't let it be solely about the monument. It should Mm -hmm. be about the work and the man that produced it. And, and I guess statue. I guess I'll finish this. Like, let me just put the button on, on this conversation by saying, like, I think perhaps the thing that's most telling and most revealing of of his greatness and, and of the fact that we should appreciate him is just the fact that 400 years later, 
I mean, I, you know, I can name other Elizabethan poets and other Jacobian poets, but 400 years later, there's only one of those guys who is still talked about in, with any currency and, in fact, is the most performed playwright in the world, right? And I think the fact that 400 years later, you know, if your work lasts for 400 years and it still feels like it has something relevant to say today to our current situation and about people and about psychology and about the way people view the world, then, you know, it doesn't really matter how great it is in absolute terms. It, it, I think, just goes to show that it's worth considering. Yes, I think that's true. Another way of putting it is there's always the question of significance. There are many very significant artists. Shakespeare is certainly significant in breaking precedents and breaking boundaries and developing new plots and new forms. I think what makes Shakespeare fascinating, though, is he has enduring and relevant things to say in addition to being a boundary-breaking innovator on the stage in many respects. I think that's critical. I mean, Griffith, when he made Birth of a Nation, a film that has execrable content but invented all of these camera techniques and is truly an innovative piece of filmmaking for the time it was released— it's nigh on unwatchable today, not just because of the political content, but because it's kind of boring. And some people might mm-hmm. make that argument about Citizen Kane to some degree as well. I mean, maybe with less justification. But these are artifacts from a particular period that show somebody who is an artistic genius shattering barriers. I think the thing with Shakespeare is he is both significant and profound. The work is interesting and enduring because it has relevant things to say. It also happens to be packaged and put together by somebody who really did break the mold in a lot of ways with his work over time. And I think that's what we're going to get to see in the back end of the catalog. On which subject, Will, if we can turn to less august, less uh, less highfalutin topics, uh, I just wanted to do some quick hits on both what remains to be read and what we have already read and ask you, as you survey the landscape of the plays to come, what is left that you're most excited to read? Oh, boy. Well, or maybe I should say, well, let me let me rephrase that. What is left that you're most exciting to read and then talk about on this podcast? Oh, man. On this podcast, I think it's between Hamlet and Macbeth, but I think I'm going to go with Hamlet. Hamlet is one of those plays that is intensely lived in. It has the massive cast that we've seen. It also has penetrating psychological portraits, and it has a lot more to say about human nature than just the politics of the Danish court. So I'm really curious to delve into that again after maybe 15 years of absence from really engaging with that. It's probably been since I was a senior in high school, and I think I've seen a couple movies since then, but really Hamlet is kind of the brass ring that uh, I'm looking forward to talking about on the on the pod. What about so you? So you're, you're really, just to be clear, are you excited about Hamlet or are you excited about watching the four-hour-long Kenneth Branagh film for the minisode of Hamlet? Well, I think that's going to be an interesting challenge. I was thinking, of course, there's Mel Gibson's Hamlet. And, uh, or rather, (laughs) Mel Gibson's Hamlet, excuse me, I believe it's Bertolucci's Hamlet, in which Mel Gibson plays a role. And, of course, there's the great Ethan Hawke, my 
doppelganger if you squint <laughs> extremely hard, uh, which opens with... You're much Ham- handsomer than Ethan Hawke. Yeah, yeah, you know, thank you. It's very kind of you to say. With Hamlet being stalked by his father's ghost, I believe, while he's returning a VHS at a blockbuster <laughs> or something along those lines. So in any case, I think our, our film omnibus of Hamlet is going to be an excellent film club minisode. Fair enough. For my part... And this is more, Will, for personal reasons, not rather than for uh, reasons of Shakespeare's art. But um, I think you know this about me, but you may not know this about me, that I am fascinated by the historical personage of Julius Caesar. And so I am really interested. I'm, I'm one, fascinated and excited to do our episode on, on the play of Julius Caesar for that reason. And I am also very excited to do our episode on Julius Caesar for what I think will be a an ex, dare I say an explosive politics corner discussion of mm. Brutus and Julius Caesar. Well, I think it'll be fun because we'll have uh, Brutus, Cassius, Mark Antony, and of course Julius Caesar, who is uh, is a fascinating character. It's gonna be that's gonna be a fun one. It will be explosive. I am just anticipating it. Combine. I mean, it is definitely. Right. If, if you think about the Venn diagram of, of my, and I would even go so far as to say our interests, Shakespeare and tragedy, there's explosive conversation about politics, and there is the history of the Roman Republican Empire, right? And, and right, right will at the center of that Venn diagram is this play. So... Yes. I'm excited about that. Yeah, I'm excited too. I'm getting excited and it's uh, coming around the pike uh, sooner than very soon, very can soon possibly indeed. believe. You know, I was I was wondering if you were going to throw a curveball and say Pericles, Prince of Tyre, but uh, No. I was I was not Pericles, <laughs> Prince of Tyre, more like. Indeed. And then so will next question for you of the play that we've read, now doing sort of the survey of of what we've read already. Tell me what is a play that has stuck with you? Or has a moment that stuck with you that has surprised you? I mean, what is a play that you did not expect you would come back to, but has stuck with you nonetheless? Uh, Strangely, or perhaps not so strangely, I find myself returning to not the more well-known Henriad, but the Henry VI plays with the culmination of Richard III, but really particularly Henry VI parts one and two. I had not read these plays. This is is very early in the pod. It was very early. I knew next to nothing about them, which is part of the novelty, I suppose. But I actually found them to be very richly imagined. The characters are a little bit flat, but there's greater and greater variety in part two. And the vision of faction, of dissension in the body politic, of misinformation and false flag operations and leaders that don't know what they're doing and are incompetent and then people that do know what they're doing and are scarily competent because they don't have the best interest of the realm at heart that has been something that has been unexpectedly or or perhaps expectedly resonant as i look out on the political and international scene of today so i i was i was rather um you know, surprised. I'm not saying that we're approaching a civil war in this country or necessarily anywhere else. I am just saying that there is a surprising degree of sophistication 
and a richly imagined political universe in Henry VI, parts one and two in particular. And it culminates in Richard III later on, which is pretty scary and pretty interesting. But taken together, that's what that's what stuck with me and has surprised me a little bit. What about you? I would say the thing that, you know, the, the, the play that has most surprised me by how it stuck with me I would say there's really two options, which are Merchant of Venice and Love's Labor's Lost, but really it's Love's Labor's Lost. And I say that even though I feel like there's an element of Merchant of Venice that has really lodged itself deep in my mind that I keep coming back to, and I wasn't expecting that reading the play. But, you know, but but that being said, Love's Labor's Lost, like the ending of Love's Labor's Lost has just stuck with me and really made a a huge impression on me in a way that I never would have expected for a play that's considered to be pretty minor Mm. in Shakespeare's canon. And I think it's because... (sighs) Look, well, you know, sometimes a work of art has an impression, you know, makes an impression on you, and it's just because you're in the right place in your life for that particular work to work upon you, if you will. And, And that could certainly be part of it. I think though that something about that play's sort of contrast between the playfulness and the frivolity mm-hmm. of the life without care, which really is, I think, what all the characters in the play are living prior mm-hmm. to the death of the King of France, right? They're all living in this sort of idyllic world and the men are swearing an oath to go and learn as much as they can and they'll become famous because of that, they think, for some reason that's not clear. And the princess, you know, and her ladies seem to be like tripping around the world, going to different places. They're on this diplomatic mission. Really, they're just having a grand old time traveling around together. And, you know, and then they're caught in this erotic chaos that's funny and like, but but even at the time where they're engaged in this flirtation that consumes all their energy, it also doesn't seem like it's having that mm. big an effect on them. You know, it doesn't mean that much ultimately, right? It's still fun and games, I think, really to them. <laughs> and to have it sort of strike that sudden reminder that things are so much more serious and so much more precious than mm. what they've seen or observed. You know, I don't even know that the play is that good, mm-hmm. like in the context of Shakespeare's work, but it really, I feel like the entire play builds to that moment. And if it's done well, mm. like, I feel like that's, I don't know. It, it just completely transformed my entire reading of the play. And it's, I think it's as much the emotional reaction to that moment that has stuck with me and like that is endowed mm. with great meaning, even though I think the play as a whole may not be the strongest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can I can see that. And I certainly would not say, even with my own selection, that that's the best play that we've read. But it's unexpected, the things that sometimes stick with you. That's for sure. Yeah. So, James, rankings that we regret... What ranking, either in the MVP or the positioning of the plays, do you regret placing high or placing low? Well, Will, you've already given me my my main mea culpa, which was placing Romeo and Juliet initially below Love's Labor's Lost in my rankings, which was a, a truly... I think, you know, it only looks worse and worse. You lacked the courage of your convictions, James. I, yes, I did. However... Speaking more rationally, 
I really have two regrets I want to call out, Will. The first one is in a similar, actually, in a similar vein, almost the opposite problem. I think I ranked A Midsummer Night's Dream too highly. Mm. You know, I think I was not bamboozled, but I was intimidated by how famous it is. I was intimidated by its reputation. And therefore, I ranked it above two plays that in retrospect, I think I really would rank more highly, but which mm. are Henry VI Part Two and Richard II. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is also with a little bit of the benefit of hindsight, it's just not a play that has stuck with me. You know, we're talking about plays sticking with you. That is not a play that has stuck with me. Yeah, that's interesting. And you can't even blame it on drinking a mysterious potion in the wee hours (laughs) of the morning in a forest uh, outside of Athens. And then I'll quickly say, and then I have an, an MVP that I regret, which is, and, you know, again, I think this is something that it's only been the passage of time that's made me realize what a bad decision, in, in, at least from my perspective, this was. I anointed Richard, the Duke of York, as the MVP of Henry VI Part Two, And I think, frankly, Will, I was a little bit intimidated by your choice of Jack Cade as the MVP of that play. But really, you know, if I'm being truthful to myself... My MVP for that play was Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester, Mm. who, you know, perhaps not the MVP in terms of his ability to remain in power, but as being the only moral center of that play, I think deserved better than I gave him. Yeah, that that's probably I I would agree with that, generally speaking. Interesting. How about you? For my part, do you have yeah any regrets? No significant regrets. Uh, Ironically, and I ranked it lower than you did. Midsummer Night's Dream, I don't get it. I didn't get it at the time. I still don't really get it. I understand why it's performed. It's just one that I didn't like. And frankly, I liked it less than Henry VI Part One. I liked it less than Love's Labor's Lost. I may have even liked it less than The Comedy of Errors. So that's, that's one regret. And if I'm being honest with myself, King John, not a good play but better than Comedy of Errors, and I found it more enjoyable to read and more fun to read than Merry Wives of Windsor, if I'm to be completely honest with myself. So I've got a little bit of a superposition problem here of how I'd arrange. And then in terms of characters, I don't really have any um, regrets per se with my character rankings. There's no egregious examples of really blowing it. Much Ado, I was really a toss-up between Beatrice and Benedict, and I feel like since we both gave them their due, the fact that I almost went with Beatrice but ultimately decided on Benedict, uh, I feel like it all it all evened out. Fair enough. And finally, Will, I guess my my last question here would be, what's your favorite thing that we've read and or talked about mm. with Shakespeare? Yeah, favorite thing that we've talked about, that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I think we had a really rich discussion of The Merchant of Venice in a lot of ways, both the legal and sort of theological complexities of that, as well as some pretty thorny territory in terms of the anti-Semitism in the play, but also Shakespeare's humanistic eye towards Shylock. And And honestly, I feel like we did pretty well in having a good, honest, thoughtful discussion there about some stuff that 
is pretty, um, you know, potentially explosive and just challenging to talk about <laughs> in a format where we're recording ourselves and putting it out for the world. And I feel I feel very um, pleased with the richness of that conversation that we had, and I've definitely kept uh, thinking about it since. What about yourself? I, I agree. I think... Uh, look, I, I, I was going to say we've had, I think we've been guided by Shakespeare in, in this regard. I, I've been very interested in the ongoing conversation that we've had about political legitimacy and political behavior. And, and I guess in that, I'm, I'm getting at all the different themes we've ended up talking about, about, about like what sort of holds together a, a polity. And I think we've seen that refracted in the three parts of Henry VI, in Richard II, I think to a lesser degree in King John. I think you value King John as a play more than I do. And and I think it's something that we're, is going to come to a head and maybe we'll even conclude the discussion to some degree in Henry V and then in Julius Caesar. But I think that's been a very productive and really, to me, very interesting ongoing conversation in the pod. And we found mm-hmm. different ways to engage with it. And also, I think it's also evolved over time as Shakespeare's view of it has evolved mm-hmm. over time. And that's that's sort of been interesting too, I think, is is the way that we have our own takes on it, but also we're reacting to his changing yeah. perspective yeah. on it. And, and, you know, to be honest, I think that that's been incredibly rich for me as well. And I think as a whole, that's probably play across play. I, I think I'd probably agree with you there. Yeah. Will, I do actually have one final question. Uh, sorry, I, I know I promised that the last one would be the final question. And this sort of this really goes hand in hand with some of the stuff we were talking about earlier before we got into these sort of quick hits rankings conversations. But what have you found to be the single or or the most important or most remarkable aspect of Shakespeare's writing as we've been doing this? Oh, boy, there's so much there. I think for me, it's his ability to juggle multiple psychologically rich characters at the same time as his work has gone on and in the context of that to not suspend his critical judgment of these characters, but to empathize with them. And I think Merchant of Venice is a great example of that with Shylock, but I also think you find examples of it in all of the contested political disputes in the history plays as well. He really takes you on the journey of some of these characters and reveals it in the ways that they talk and behave over time. And you really feel like you know them and you understand the arc that they need to go on. And it's very satisfying and feels very rich. And it's not something that you see as much in his earlier work to include, you know, the earlier history plays of the Henry VI, you know, the Henry VI plays. But he really, I think starting Richard III and really in the Henry ad really, really rocks that particular challenge so i guess that's what that's what really has delighted me about it most of all what about you yeah no i think my i I think my answer to the question is kind of just a different way of phrasing what you said you know which is that i i think to me the single most incredible really and i mean incredible in like the in the literal sense of being not believable (laughs) is aspect of shakespeare's work is what I would describe as his radical objectivity. Mm. And it's also been interesting to track that from early on, because I think 
when we were in the earlier plays, I, I remember we had several conversations about Shakespeare's pessimism. And I think in those early plays, like between Two Gentlemen of Verona, Titus Veronica's Tame of the Shrew, and the first, at least the first two parts, and I think probably all three parts of the Henry VI saga, even up to Richard III, mm. we were kind of in agreement that Shakespeare really is a pessimist about human nature and like kind of a misanthrope even. You know, that he had a lot of interesting things to say, but like was sort of refracting those things through a fairly dark view of human nature. And I feel like what's happened as we've gone on is that he has become no less objective. And when I say objective, what I mean is that, you know, these characters represent these different philosophies, these different views of the world and these different value systems. And he always represents them even when he hates them. I, like, I, I mean, I think it's hard to read The Merchant of Venice and not conclude, to, to, to your point, that he hates Shylock. And yet he still portrays them in the most human light possible. Mm. And he gives them the dignity of their beliefs and, and like represents their belief system in the most strong position as possible i think mm-hmm. and you know and that mm-hmm. that i think also goes really directly to our conversations about falstaff and hotspur too yeah yeah and, and i think it's just really really remarkable that he is able to represent these different systems of belief systems of knowledge systems of thought so objectively Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, and I, I guess, you know, maybe that's not as impressive as I think it is. But I, I think that has been the aspect of his writing that has made the greatest impression on me. And that I think is the source of a lot of what fascinates us and disturbs us in reading Shakespeare. So yeah, absolutely. That's my answer. And Will, with that, I I have exhausted my store of topics for our halfway point recap. Um, anything else you want to talk about? No, I think we've about covered it. In that case, let me just say, that's our show. And next time on Bardflies, we will be starting the second half of the plays with Shakespeare's final and arguably, though Will, you know, Will may put up a fight on this, arguably greatest history play, Henry V. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.